0: Hi, this is David Hampton. I'm the author of
1: Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed. And you are listening to On Faith Edge with Joe Taylor. I started selling marijuana, and I made more money selling pounds of marijuana than I ever did in crack. Blew me away. And I was going to a church, and I was tithing to a church. I would walk into the church. Connell in my flesh, sit next to the prettiest girl, and that plate would come around, I would drop eight grand, seven grand, ten grand, whatever I made that week. And over and over again, what was powerful was the pastor kept announcing, tithing has gone up.
0: Thank you to author and worship pastor David Hampton for the introduction. David is an amazing example of how living through pain, struggle, and heartbreak, God can reveal deep wisdom and life insight, and frankly, in David's case, a twisted sense of humor. David was our guest on the last episode of On Faith's Edge, where we talked about his book, Our Authentic Selves, where he tells a story of struggling through his wife's suffering with a progressive and eventually debilitating disease in his own subsequent spiral into alcoholism, all while raising a teenage daughter. It's an amazing conversation about healing and returning to an authentic faith. Also on the show, Alonka Deaton, fresh off her appearance on The Steve Harvey Show, returns to discuss her new book, Keeping Secrets, where she tells her story of survival as she was kept in sexual slavery as a teenager by her manager of all people. Alonka is a special woman, and her story is incredible. You can hear our conversations at onfaithedge.com slash 66. Again, that's onfaithsedge.com slash 66. Well, hello. Welcome to the 67th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Today, I have the absolute privilege of speaking with former drug lord Dimas Salabarios about his book, Street God. It's his true story of of his dangerous journey through the underworld of crime, drugs, and almost certain death. It was an encounter with the real God that saved his life and then made it even more dangerous because that God sent Dimas back down the darkest streets he'd ever known with others' lives depending on it. You cannot imagine how tall Dimas is. <laughs> this guy is, what, what are you, 6'8", six, 6'9"? Six, six six. 6'6". Six, 6'6", yeah. six. well, at 5'6". Anybody over 6'6 six, six is a giant to me. So, <laughs> I, was telling, I was telling Demas a story about me being in Promise Keepers, uh, and inevitably I'd, get, I'd, I'd be getting right next to uh, two Demuses, and they're oh standing gosh. next to me, and my, my arms are, I'm all five 5'6", and my arms are seven feet in the air, and I'm trying to just Ooh, just Lord, hold on for dear life. Just trying to touch the ground. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Demas, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so excited to talk about Street God. Uh, This is an intriguing story, man. A former drug boss that went on the run. Yes. And uh, your story of how you went from a former drug boss on the run to coming to faith in Jesus Christ.
1: I mean, uh, Street God is, you know, uh, it's, it's been a humbling experience. I mean, Tim Keller, you know, who's my mentor, said it was the best redemption story he's ever Red. And uh, his wife, you know, did some great edits on it and walked through it. She's been like a mother figure for me. She said, she said, Demas, you really have something here. And that was just so incredible. And she doesn't do that for anybody. So uh, that was very unique. And um, I mean, the story starts out, I grew up in Queens, New York you know, in a very uh, suburban area. Queen's like the suburb of New York, yet it's a borough in the five cities. So you're thinking like manicured lawns, you know, you're seeing kids playing outside. And uh, at age 10, I went to go see this, you know, movie, E.T. You remember that? Sure. You know, and I left out there with a dream of riding my bicycle, you know, into the sky. But the following year, the movie Scarface came out. And I left out of the movie after seeing that with a dream of being the largest drug dealer in the United States. And the way the enemy works, as you know, I went to school and with that dream in my mind and a friend pulls me to the side and says, hey, man, you want to try some drugs? And he's convinced me to buy this mess tab for three dollars. I popped the pill it was a hallucinogen. I mean, it's like the walls just started to wave. I didn't, I didn't like it, but then he said, do you want to help me sell it? I was like, absolutely, you know, I want to do this. So I started to sell drugs at age 11. 11 years old. 11 years old. Wow. And, uh, and this is a predominantly white school, so you can't think like, oh, this one community is safer than the other. You know, that probably wouldn't have happened even in the school in my community. So, you know, started to sell mess tabs, then moved up to marijuana. Then I started to sell crack cocaine. And that's when we started to see the real money. In Queens, New York, because it was, you know, this high middle-class population, some drug blocks you could make $150,000 a day. Now, I, ne- I didn't see that kind of money, but that's what it was because the people were not like, you know, the poor they had you know, some glimpses of wealth, and even from other parts of the area had great wealth. Wow.
0: Wow. So um, you, started, you started selling drugs. Um, this was your dream, originating from Scarface. Yeah. It, isn't that interesting that the impact that that movie had on you, where it set a path for your life? And, and, and we have to remember that as, as, as parents, uh, what we expose our children to. Would you agree with that, Demas?
1: Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I had no business seeing that movie. And the way I processed it was I thought, okay, he got up to this point of, of you know, having this money machines. Where he's counting big bags. And I said, why didn't he just quit then? So then I dreamed, I said, well, you know what? I should, you know, get into this world. And when I get to the big bags of money, I would quit. But uh, the more you got into the business, the more you realize it's not that easy to to walk away from that, you know, kind of empire.
0: How how long did you sell drugs, and 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 how? Excuse my ignorance. How far into the organization, into an organization, did you get, or were you building your own organization?
1: I mean, I started off. I mean, I was discipled in the drug world, just like we make Christians. I was discipled by some of the largest drug dealers in New York City. And even in success magazines today, it says in order to be extremely successful, they trace that most of these people worked in another corporation for a period of four to five years. So I learned from some of the deadliest drug dealers. I mean, some of them were straight up serial killers. Uh, One of them, President Bush Sr., walked around with a badge of Officer Burns, who one of the guys that I was connected to had Officer Burns killed. I mean, so this was the level of the organization that it changed, you know, the country and the war against drugs. So eventually I realized that I wouldn't move up hanging with them unless I became a killer. And that's not something that I wanted to be involved in. I was in it for the money. So I ventured off by age 16, started my own operation and controlled two different drug blocks at that age. You know, then the cops got mad and they walked up to me because uh, they, they can they could never bust me on any big bus. only small little bus. And I had a good lawyer. I was beating cases back to back. And then one time the cops rolled up on me. I said, I don't have anything. They said, yeah, they pulled the bag out of the car and put the drugs on me and said, beat this case, Daylight. That was my street name. And that's when I went to Rikers Island for a year. At 16? At 16. I mean, that's like one of the worst jails in the United States. I fought almost every other day, and then I became a real good fighter. And, you know, and my mother and them thought, like, you know, what was scary was my father was the captain of correction on Rikers Island. Wow. So a lot of the, i didn't know it, but a lot of the correction officers were looking out for me because I wondered— Why am I not, you know, they have isolation where you get in trouble for fights. And I never went to isolation. And my dad told me later on in life, he said, my friends will call me and they were looking out for you. You know, I wasn't in the same building. It's a lot of buildings uh, that he was in. And, um, you know, and, you know, got sliced in my face. One time I got rushed by 50 guys. Thank God was never raped, anything like that. Just want to make that clear over the radio. (laughs) You know, that's not my issue, you know, but, uh, you know, but Ford then came out and I wanted to do the right thing. I had in mind, I wanted to do right. And when I go and minister in jails, I always say to them, I say, how many of you want to get a job? Almost every hand goes up. But the only job I got was working for White Castle. And when I finally got my check, it was $75.
0: Compared for, to how much money did you make in the drug I was business?
1: making $1,000 an hour. Wow. You know, so looking at $75 for all the work that I put in, it was like, no way. And I went back into the drug world again, and, um, and, and it got crazy. I went to see my parole officer. Next thing you know, she handcuffed me. And I'm like, what are you handcuffing me for? She said, because you had cocaine in your urine three times in a row. I said, I don't even use cocaine. What are you talking about? And then I realized the cocaine was going into my pores because I was cooking it up like the show Breaking Bad, but I didn't know, I didn't even know what pores were and it was going into my pores. And next thing you know, I, I, I sat on the cuffs, I slipped them forward, I stepped in front and I moved the cuffs from the back of me to the front of me. And when she walked back into the room, she didn't notice. She sat down and said, well, are you ready to go to jail? I said, no, I'm not. And I get up and I grabbed the door and I started to run. I was on the fifth floor. I'm leaping down flights of stairs, boom, hitting the bottom of the stairs. And I could hear all these cops coming after me. And I knew when I got down to the bottom, there was always a guard there. When I got down to the first floor, First time the guard wasn't there and I cut the corner. You know what I yelled? I yelled, praise God. I mean, could you believe that? <laughs> and I got away, you know, escaped and got the cuffs off, had to dress like a woman because there was checkpoints all over the city for me. And I was able to escape out of New York, dressed like a, a woman and got on the train and went to North Carolina. And that's when I really hit street God status out there.
0: So I'm going to read from, from the beginning of chapter nine of, of Street God. After leaving Zara's house, I knew my chief goals would be selling my remaining drugs, using the cash to buy large amounts of powdered cocaine, and getting to North Carolina. Certain that the police would be searching for me at my usual haunts, I bounced from place to place, sleeping in a different spot each night and staying on the move. This was your life, man. Yeah. This was your life. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about, you, you've, you've now escaped from custody. Uh, you are, uh, you're trying to get to North Carolina, right? Yeah. What, what, was the, what was that North Carolina? What was in North Carolina again?
1: Um, North Carolina, the value of drugs uh, triples from the price in New York City. So it was big money. It was safety. It was, you know, not having to look over my shoulder.
0: So, so you knew it would be a
1: safe place to sell drugs yeah. and and make more profit. Yeah, I did a short uh trip out there. Sounds Explor- like a reasonable business e- proposition. I did an exploratory trip <laughs> and uh and we sold, you know, uh drugs I brought some weight down that sold very quickly. So I was already in plans of expanding the business down there. So that incident just, you know, made it even, you know, become more of a exigent plan. Yeah. How long did you stay on the run? I was on the run for about four and a half years. Four and
0: a half years? Yeah.
1: How did you get caught? Uh, I turned myself in. Praise God. So I had a clean run for four and a half years. Other than, um, I mean, you'll have to read it in the, in the book Street God. But other than, you know, 30 of my friends were murdered. You know, I was shot at several times. Um, you know, I went through all kind of... Uh, terrible experiences, you know, during that, you know, time in North Carolina. Josh McDowell called, calls your book a
0: complex and thrilling narrative. I dare anyone to, re- to read Street God and come away unchanged. This is the cross and the slish- switchblade for a new generation. That, that's, that's quite an endorsement. This is a story not only about uh, Demas the... Uh, the drug lord, uh, Demas the criminal, the man on the run, uh, the murderer.
1: No, I never killed anybody, thank God, as far as I know. This is
0: also a story about Demas being redeemed. Take us through your story of redemption.
1: So uh, my redemption story is kind of like the movie War Room. In War Room, there was this one woman that prayed, and God answered prayers. In my story, I had three of them. And I try to really tell listeners this and I try to empower people that this is one of the, the big take homes from this book. Three women were sick and tired of the drugs in their community. And they asked and said, can we pray for you? And when I said they asked my girlfriend and she said, yes, when they came and prayed for me, I mean, the power of God flushed into that room. I mean, I felt evil depart from me, you know, and this obviously is a quick a quicker version. But I mean, I just felt this peace come over me like I couldn't believe. I stood up, I took the crack in my pocket, I threw it all in the garbage. I mean, I looked up to heaven and I said, God, I will never sell crack again. I'm only going to sell marijuana because it's natural. (laughs) And I mean, I was sincere with God. Oh, my God. I thought like crack was evil, white powder. I thought marijuana was like grass. It was like (laughs) lettuce. I mean, it was okay. And I started selling marijuana and I made more money selling pounds of marijuana than I ever did in crack. Blew me away. (laughs) And I was going to a church and I was tithing to a church. I would walk into the church, carnal in my flesh, sit next to the prettiest girl and that plate would come around. I would drop eight grand, seven grand, 10 grand, whatever I made that week. And over and over again, what was powerful was the pastor kept announcing tithing has gone up by 50%. (laughs) Tithing has gone up by 100%. We're doing a building for, I mean, that man was so excited. I didn't even calculate, but looking in retrospect, now that I'm a pastor, it was my money (laughs) that he was talking about that was changing the whole, you know, it was a 300 member church. Imagine your your. It's increasing by 7,000, 5,000, 10,000 a week. And uh, and so, but the Bible says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. So I'm glad. And I'm praying, send me a drug dealer where they can bless my <laughs> church. Now I'm just kidding, folks. But uh, but it was really good. And then finally, a youth pastor came in and really ministered to me, and he ruined the building campaign unfortunately. That's because I quit. I quit the business. And um, and the next big encounter, and it's kind of like a John Wesley story. I mean, there are points of salvation that you wonder, you know, was it really here? Was it really here? But the second thing was a hitman came to murder me. And um, and when he came, he knocked on the door. I opened the door and it was a childhood friend. And uh, he pulls me, he says, come to the side of the house. And on the side of the house was one of my worst enemies. And to this day, I don't know if that's why so many of my friends were killed, if it was an insider that was setting us up or what. And um, he pulls out the gun. I'm staring down this gun. And I just had a word that I read before opening the door that said, do ye have little faith in Matthew 6.30? Uh, uh, and i said yes i have faith god i have faith in you so i i went and um and and he pointed the gun and he and i saw a tear drop from his eye and i said oh my gosh he's about to do it and every time he pulled the trigger you heard the firing pin hit just going tink tink and he clicked it again tink clicked it again tink and i'm looking there and he's looking the guy said come on they just both took off running And I just raised my hands in there and I said, Father, I said, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, my life is in your hands. If you make it clear, God, that it's you speaking, there's nowhere I wouldn't go. And from that point of smuggled Bibles to the persecuted church in China. I was a first responder to the hurricane, I mean, the earthquake in Haiti, Superstorm Sandy in New York, Charleston, South Carolina with the manual nine. I led the demonstrations and preached in front of that church. Um, Baltimore, I was there when the first day was 200 arrests and the second day was two arrests. And this is what Street God's about. The second half of the book is about taking God to the streets. And that's what I believe believers need to catch on to. That is a big part of our mission is to make Christ known everywhere we go. I was in Paris as well after, you know, the the killings and the bombings that took place there. And I went there and started to minister on the streets when people said it could not be done. We had hundreds of people praying with us saying, Paris needs public prayer right in front of, you know, all the spots where, you know, people were killed. So tell
0: us about the the idea or the concept of uh, minister in the moment,
1: because I think that's what you're talking about. Absolutely. I think Christianity has moved to such a place that we're like, oh, something's happened. We can't go. We need to. Gather a committee. We need to meet. We need to strategize and know what we're going to do. I mean, Jesus would walk down the street and he would see a situation and he would act. And I think the body of Christ has lost so much ground in the United States and around the world because we are not relying on the Holy Spirit giving us wisdom at times on what to do. In Paris, I stood there, I said, God, we don't even know what to really do. And it was three of us. And we just huddled and said, well, let's just pray. And while we prayed, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, could I join? I said, sure. And when we prayed, we got another tap and another tap until we were like 70 to 100 people in a big circle, which started with just three of us. So sometimes even when we don't know what to do, God sets up the situation because every place is different. Baltimore, I mean, I walked up to the guys on the street. They had masks. They had rocks. Some of them had guns. They were ready to fight the police. And I just said, could I pray for you? And they were like, nah, man, we don't need prayer. I said, let me tell you what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you don't get murdered tonight, that you don't go to jail tonight, and that you don't get tear gassed tonight for what you're here to do. And the toughest guys there said Yeah, I'll take prayer for that. (laughs) You know, go ahead, pray, Pastor, go ahead. That'll work. And and we prayed for group after group. By the time, the nighttime came with a curfew. I met every thug that was out there. And I just reminded them, I said, guys, go home. Make it home tonight. That's the best thing you can do for Freddie Gray is make it home alive tonight. And those guys said, Pastor, you're right. And they left. From 200 arrested to two because the body of Christ was on the ground. This is what we wow. got to get to people. And this is what I hope people will get after reading the book Street God, that they can be used out there in the battlefield for the Lord. So from drug lord to now lead pastor. Leadership is on you, man, no matter what realm it is. I mean, you know, if you're a leader and God has gifted you to, to move people and you're passionate about the things God's called you to do. I mean, it translates across, I mean, I had a, to be a kingpin, I had a serious work ethic. I worked 12 hour work days. OK, right now, as a leader and a president of the largest clergy organization, in New York City, I still work 12 hour workdays. You know, this is not about a time for lazy pastors or lazy ministers, you know, to be in the top 10 of anything in your field. You've got to put in the hard work and we're not afraid to work. And I work right now. I mean, I haven't eaten since I've been here at this conference. (laughs) I got here at, you know, 10 o'clock, 1030 this morning. And, you know, we don't have to tell what time it is now, but I haven't had time to stop and eat because the work that we do for the Lord is more important than filling our bellies. You know, that's just a commitment that I have. And, you know, here I am sitting right now before Joe on Faith's Edge, you know.
0: What an amazing story, Dimas. What an amazing, amazing story. Uh, The book is called Street God. The author is Dimas Salabarios, and I am so glad you came to tell us your story. Can we talk a little bit about your faith? Sure. Uh, Of course, you, you shared with us how you came to Jesus Christ and your life since then. But have you ever had a time since coming to Jesus Christ where you doubted your faith or even the existence of God?
1: I, I often disappoint people with this question because honestly, I have never had that happen. I have always, my, I think if I was in boring Christianity, that's possible. But Christianity has been a roller coaster ride for me. You know, I've always, you know, had a heart for missions. You know, always had a heart for getting the gospel out. I mean, always, you know, in the middle of doing something for the Lord or being in his presence. And um, I've never had a moment like that. And I pray to God, I never have it, but I'm compassion. I have compassion towards people that go through that. And I often try to encourage them, get active in your faith and you will see God all the time. But if you're just go to church, I go to Bible study, I go home. I go to church, go to Bible study, go home. Yeah, I'm sure you'll be wondering like, yeah, my faith is just only in the word and I don't feel God. I haven't experienced God in any kind of way. To me, that's sad. But when you're out there, you see God show up so much. I mean, one time I was preaching in New Zealand at, at like 24 and these women were coming to the altar crying, and then the pastor was there, and he said, "What's wrong with you?" And the woman came forward. She said, "I've been a witch for 19 years in this church, and I need to accept Christ." I was there shaking, like what? Next person came up. I was a witch, and the pastor, said, I got this. He said, "Bring your books here. We're going to burn it. Bring all your ambulance and, 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 and ambulance and different things like that. Bring it to the church. I know these people. They've been in my church." He had witches in his church. For years. I don't know what was being preached there before I got wow. there. But when I got there, it showed up. And, you know, so I've seen the face of evil. I've seen darkness. And I've seen the glorious power that Jesus has supremacy over it all. Over it all. So I'm not afraid of witches. I'm not afraid of voodoo. I'm not afraid of evil. Because I know when we call on the power of Christ, he shows up and Every knee will bow, and right now, the demons fall at his presence. They flee, and that's what I know. And when you're involved like that, there is no doubting because you see firsthand all the time the power of God showing up. Wow. Wow.
0: I'm at a loss with that, man. Fantastic. Oh, uh, when, you're active in your, when you're active in your faith, not just active in your church— uh, not just uh, active doing, going to Bible study or going to church. When you're active in your faith, y- you don't have time to not believe. Absolutely. You don't have time to not believe. So you have Street God. You ha- you're, you're, a, you're a lead pastor of your church. Uh, what's next up for, for, for Dimas Salabarios?
1: Well, uh, I just finished writing the screenplay for Street God, on the flight, coming here. I was finally at the last chapter and screamed out, yes. <laughs> so um, there are eight different groups that are interested in making it a movie. And we keep meeting more people that are interested in making it a movie. Who do you want to play? Your uh, who, I don't know who I want to play me. But I do know who I want to play my father. Who? I want Will Smith to play the no father. Kidding. No yeah, kidding. Yeah, that would be my first <laughs> shot is Will Smith. I'll take Denzel second. <laughs> but I think Will Smith, when he cries in anything, I just instantly <laughs> well up. Yeah. And there are such incredible scenes in the screenplay of a father stepping in and helping their son that I think uh, he would just blot out the water. But there's a lot of people, you know, we're still figuring out who would play myself. And, uh, and, and it's still up there. Some people want... Michael uh Michael Jordan um you know to do it uh and there's some other people I think that he was in Rocky wasn't it oh, no, yeah uh, yeah he killed Rocky, Rocky. Um, yeah no it was Rocky Creed Creed, Creed yeah, same, yeah you know yeah great same, movie same. Creed, oh it's incredible. It's, yeah, it's incredible it's an incredible movie Something, you mentioned
0: you mentioned your dad you must work. yeah were you close with your dad
1: um I was close with him he cut me off during the time that I was in the drug world and uh he is so proud of me now. He told me the other day he said, "Son, you have gone farther further than any Salibari else that's ever lived on the planet, so he's super excited about all the things that God has been doing with me and through me and uh from your that, how did that feel coming from your dad? Oh my gosh, it was the highest honor ever <laughs> i mean that I mean I've been given awards I've been you know. I, I, I mean, I've been to the White House. I've been through all kind of stuff. Nothing, nothing was bigger than hearing my dad say those words because I, I just never looked at it like that ever. So, so that's, that was beautiful. Wait until we hear, well done, good and faithful. servant. Oh, oh, come on, man. Yeah. I can't I, I can wait, but I yeah. can't wait. You know, it's that middle. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be incredible. Just let me see my Jesus. It's going to be so awesome. I can't wait.
0: Demas, as we wrap up, what would you say to that person that is right on faith's edge, about to make that choice to believe or not to believe in God?
1: I I would tell them, um, take the jump. Take the leap of faith. I mean, now, have I ever doubted? No. But there was a point in my life where I said, you know what, God? I'm all in. I didn't know how long that all in was going to be. But I said, I'm all in. Basically, show yourself. And the other part of that story was I turned myself in. I was facing seven years. And for escape charge in New York, that, I mean, they give that away like ice cream, you know? And I got pardoned. I got released. I didn't do those seven years. I did 56 days. And when I saw the judge, the judge let me go. Every time I've stepped and done a leap towards God and went all out for God, God has gone all out. He went all out for me. So if you're there, I'm telling you, give God your heart. Give him a shot. You will not be disappointed. God is as real today as he was in those scriptures. And he has no favoritism. He will love you. He will encourage you. He will be with you. But you got to take those bold steps. I left my girlfriend's house. I walked out of her bed to find a place to live with a bag like nowhere to go. I just stepped out in faith over and over and over again. And he met me over and over and over again. That's the supreme God that we serve, and I hope you get to know him.
0: I don't think we can say anything more than that. Demos Salabarios, the book is Street God, and it is a life changer. It's a life changer. Thank you so much for being with us today, All man. Right,
1: thank you so much, Joe. It was a pleasure. God bless you, brother. God bless you.
0: Dimas's website is pastordemos.com. That's P A S T O R D I M A S. PastorDimas.com, and his book, Street God, is available on Amazon.com. Of course, all of today's links can be found in the show notes at OnFaithsEdge.com slash 67. Again, that's OnFaithsEdge.com slash 67. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Dimas Salabarios for being with us today, and thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, and you mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real. He loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you.